This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to PM. I'm Rachel Mealy, coming to you from the lands of the Turbul and Yuggera people in Brisbane. Tonight, more than 20,000 lives lost in Turkey and Syria, and many earthquake survivors are without shelter and food. Also, the Reserve Bank explains why more interest rate rises are needed and the Treasurer outlines his plan to tamp down surging prices. It's a bit nerve-wracking, like we're managing at the moment, but you just don't know how much more it's going to go. You have to pay so much when I've only got like one bag of shopping, you know. There is a danger here that the Reserve Bank misreading the inflation problem and then causing a, an unnecessary recession. And why shouldn't artificial intelligence help singers pump out more music? We'll look at Google's AI band. I feel like these developers are just, they're brilliant at what they do, but I also just think they wish that they were rock stars. Like, you know, like, I think they just want to try and show that it can do everything. Why don't they just pick up a guitar and try and write a song? First tonight, search and rescue teams in Turkey and Syria are pleading for more international help as the death toll from Monday's earthquake surges past 20,000. Morgues and cemeteries are overwhelmed in parts of Turkey and an Australian crew of 72 is en route to the disaster zone. The chances of finding survivors in the freezing temperatures are dimming. But this morning, a 17-year-old boy has been pulled largely unscathed from beneath the rubble of a collapsed building in the Turkish city of Gaziantep after being trapped for 94 hours. Rachel Hayter reports. The night is not restful in the southwestern Turkish town of Kirakan. We are working mostly... Uh, 23 hours or more, uh, we're just sleeping only 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Volunteer Omar has a beanie pulled low on his brow. He found two teenagers and a dog beneath the debris. I took one dog, a small, small, uh, small dog, it's, it's living, got flesh, and uh, two children, something like so 60, 70 years old, they were clamped together on the bed. They are uh, unfortunately dead. Allah The rescue teams are getting tired. Some men warm themselves by a fire. Temperatures in the flattened town are sub-zero. There is uh, some people at the moment still in a life, but uh, every hour is for us uh, so, so uh, hard. 52 Australian firefighters trained in urban search and rescue will reach the quake zone on the weekend. With them, 20 more paramedics, doctors and engineers, equipped with bandages, bolt cutters, chainsaws and drills. Deputy Prime Minister Richard Miles says the federal government will provide more help if needed. We'll continue to talk with international authorities about how we can best assist in, uh, in this effort. That effort has finally reached rebel-held northwest Syria. The United Nations says six aid trucks have crossed the border from Turkey. After 12 years of civil war, Syria is divided into multiple territories controlled by enemy groups. 
in areas controlled by the government of Syria. There is one way of accessing those areas, which is through Damascus. And then in the northwest of Syria, which is an area controlled by armed opposition actors, there is a UN Security Council resolution that mandates access to that area cross-border from Turkey. Emma Beals is a non-resident fellow at the Middle East Institute in Washington. She says that access is now limited to a single crossing. The road to that crossing was severely damaged. The closest airport was severely damaged. Even before the earthquake struck, the UN estimated more than 4 million people in northwest Syria were reliant on aid via that corridor. This man, Amar, works with the White Helmets Civil Defence Group in the region. He says he can hear people stuck beneath collapsed buildings, but there's not enough machinery or rescuers to help them. People are crying under the rubble, but because of the lack of equipment, especially the developed equipment, because of the lack of the heavy vehicles, we weren't able to respond. Melbourne Syrian restaurant owner Nayran Tubby hasn't heard from her family since Monday. I cannot imagine it, you know, when I sit with myself to think about Syria, I feel so down, you know, so down, because it's my country and my blood, and I feel my sister and brother under that demolished buildings. Foreign Minister Penny Wong says at least two Australians are still missing in Turkey. Rachel Hayter reporting. Correspondent Sean Rubenstein-Dunlop joins us from Adana in southern Turkey. Sean, four days on from this earthquake, what problems are rescuers facing? Well, look, rescuers have spent another night digging through the rubble, but they are complaining about a lack of equipment expertise and support that is really, really hampering their efforts. Uh, There are now uh, more than 100,000 rescue personnel here in Turkey, but even so, um, survival is a lucky dip. Um, I spent the day in Iskandinor, one of the the worst hit cities in in Turkey's south, um, building uh, uh, after building just uh, obliterated by this earthquake. And, uh, you know, we saw firsthand the way uh, that some uh, some collapsed buildings were left completely alone by rescuers uh, and others had dozens or so perched on top of them, digging by hand and with what equipment they had. Uh, survivors there complaining uh, that essentially it came down to whether or not uh, rescuers or, or, um, or relatives even uh, could hear a voice uh, if they were in the vicinity uh, of that uh, of, of that uh, uh, of that wreckage, so um, undoubtedly there are many survivors uh, trapped under the rubble who have been perishing over the past few days simply because there aren't enough rescuers. There are also severe logistical problems. There aren't enough vehicles. And as you heard in that package, roads are devastated. Roads particularly towards the Syrian border. And of course, in in Syria, uh, the situation is even worse. Uh, So so it's a a dire situation here, even though there are more than 100,000 rescuers, that still isn't enough. And they don't have the equipment in many cases cases that they need and not enough shelter either. In Iskandinor, people 
Uh, some people are living in a tent city, but there isn't enough room. We found people living on the streets, you know, huddling around uh, fires and living in the wreckage of some buildings, clearly very, very dangerous situation there. And uh, um, if further aid doesn't arrive here, it's going to get even worse. Sean Rubenstein Dunlop, we wish you all the best with your reporting. Thanks for joining us from Adana. The Fair Work Ombudsman has launched legal action against the University of Melbourne, accusing the university of underpaying 14 academics and creating false and misleading records. It comes just a few months after the university was forced to pay more than $22 million in back pay to 15,000 casual workers. The Ombudsman says she's investigating a number of other universities in what she describes as a serious and systemic problem. Bridget Fitzgerald reports. For years, Nick Robinson knew he was working far more hours than he was getting paid for, but he put up with it, believing he'd be rewarded with an ongoing position. One day we would get permanent jobs and not have to worry about it anymore. But the problem is those permanent jobs never came. He's worked at the University of Melbourne in various teaching roles since 2015. It started to dawn on me that there was no other option. And then I got, I felt really upset, just kind of devastated. After years of agitating by the union, the University of Melbourne revealed late last year it owed $22 million in back pay to 15,000 casual workers. Nick Robinson received around $20,000. The Fair Work Ombudsman has now commenced legal action against the University of Melbourne in the federal court. Ombudsman Sandra Parker says the legal action relates to the alleged underpayment of 14 casual academics totalling more than $150,000. Specifically, the university is accused of failing to pay staff for time spent marking students' work. They used what's, what we see as a benchmarking arrangement. So they, for example, paid them on the basis of words per hour, time per student. This was insufficient. Sandra Parker says issues with underpayment of staff and insecure work are serious problems across the sector. We have seen systematic underpayment of staff across universities. Uh, my agency is spending an enormous amount of time working with universities to try to address underpayments that go back many years. There's been a massive move in the university sector towards more secure employment. Craig Lawton is the Executive Director of the Australian Higher Education Industrial Association. The organisation represents 32 universities across the country. The University of Melbourne is not a member. The issue of underpayment is, we call it wage integrity across the sector, is an issue, right? Our members are not sweeping it under the carpet. We're proactively dealing with that uh, with efforts um, as we're trying to work with the Fair Work Ombudsman um, to affect some change in that space. So we're acknowledging that. Craig Lawton says the problem's structural and that universities are trying to improve working conditions. A lot of the university's funding is based very specifically on research from government and grants. And as a result of that, what the universities endeavour to do is match the work efforts required under the grants to the obviously the mode of employment um, <clears throat> in terms of the relevant people who are working on those particular projects. David Gonzalez is the University of Melbourne Branch Secretary for the National 
National Tertiary Education Union. The underpayment of staff um, is a, a problem 15 to 20 years in the making. The NTEU is currently renegotiating an enterprise bargaining agreement with the University of Melbourne. The union wants a target of 80% of university staff in ongoing positions under the EBA. According to the University of Melbourne's latest annual report, around 51% of its staff were employed as fixed term or casual. We believe that the only way that you're going to solve problems such as wage theft and casualization is to decasualize the workforce. In a statement, a University of Melbourne spokeswoman said the university has cooperated with the Fair Work Ombudsman and that staff affected have been backpaid. Although she did not want to comment further on the matter before the courts, the spokeswoman said the university was improving its payrolls and time recording systems and was working hard on its remediation program. Bridget Fitzgerald with that report. Just days after hiking interest rates for a record ninth time in a row, the Reserve Bank has more grim news that inflation will remain higher than previously forecast and more rate rises are to come. The RBA's forecast comes as the Albanese government spells out a three-point plan to tackle stubborn rates of inflation in the upcoming May budget. While one economist wants the government to stay out of the way while the central bank battles inflation, another warns there's the risk of overestimating the price spiral. Gavin Coote reports. At the Midland Shopping Centre in Perth's outskirts, the signs of biting inflation are everywhere. Meat is bad, fruit and veg is bad. I'm disabled and I have to get my groceries delivered, which I've got to pay for delivery as well as the extra cost of everything going up. I find it nerve-wracking to pay so much when I've only got like one bag of shopping, you know. You're talking about $100 a bag now. It's ridiculous. The rising cost of groceries and petrol is the last thing borrowers like Chloe needs. The mother from nearby Caversham is paying hundreds more per week on her mortgage thanks to consecutive interest rate rises. I think if it keeps going up more and more, we'll have to look at things like maybe refinancing, switching banks, that kind of thing. I'd like the interest rates dropped a bit. That would be nice. The Reserve Bank has now confirmed Australians can expect to see at least two more interest rate rises. In its latest quarterly statement on monetary policy, the Reserve Bank has hinted further rate rises are likely to be a quarter of a percent each time, rather than a half a percent. The Federal Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, has seized on the RBA statement, arguing it shows the government's energy market intervention will help tackle inflation. This government's energy plan is all about taking some of the sting out of energy prices and taking some of the edge off inflation in our economy, and the independent Reserve Bank says that they expect that it will. The Treasurer's today outlined a plan to get inflation under control as part of the upcoming budget in May. Our three-point plan to tackle the inflation challenge in our economy is all about providing responsible cost-of-living relief, dealing with issues in the supply chains and making sure that we've got the most responsible budget that we can. But some warn Australia's inflation problem could become entrenched and it'll take more aggressive rate rises to prevent that. Look, I think at the moment we're on a bit of a knife edge on this one. 
Warren Hogan is economic advisor to Judo Bank and is underwhelmed by the Treasurer's plan to battle inflation. It's not happening quickly enough. There's not enough urgency around the government's actions. It, it seems too much like they're interested in presenting a big set piece at budget time than actually getting something done now. In terms of the cost of living, it's a very tricky one. They give money to people in the economy to help them with bills. It does make the RBA's job harder, but we can't, I think, be too critical when they're helping the most vulnerable, assuming that's the way it all ends up being structured. The one thing I think we need is a bit more leadership from Canberra in trying to explain to the community why the RBA has to do what they're doing. And yes, they have to slow the economy, but it's a much better result than letting inflation get away from us. And the government doesn't want to have any political association with these rate hikes, and we can all understand that. But putting that to the side, there is, a, there is a need for leadership. The RBA needs their independence. They need political cover. They're taking a lot of heat in the community because of these rate hikes. Echoing calls for spending restraint is Shadow Treasurer Angus Taylor. If you want to take pressure off inflation and interest rates, you need to focus on balancing the government's budget. Otherwise, households are going to struggle to manage their budgets. AMP Chief Economist Shane Oliver is a bit more optimistic than the Reserve Bank when it comes to the inflation outlook. He points out constraints in supply chains are now easing, which means there could be some price relief on the horizon. And as that occurs, it will negate the need for ever higher interest rates. And there is a danger here that the Reserve Bank therefore ends up overdoing it, misreading the inflation problem and then causing an unnecessary recession. And of course, that would be a very bad outcome to have the recession and the pandemic and then an inflation problem and then back to a recession again. That's not a, a good outcome. It would certainly be a horrible outcome for many Australians. AMP Chief Economist Shane Oliver, ending that report by Gavin Coote and Isabel Masali. This is PM. I'm Rachel Mealy. Ahead, who's paying and how much for the Olympic redevelopment of Brisbane's Gabba Stadium? An independent scientist has rejected the findings of a CSIRO report that found emissions from a planned gas fracking project in the Northern Territory could be offset. The research came from a project at the CSIRO that's partly funded by the gas industry and the finding has been labelled as wildly unrealistic. Jane Barden reports. In the heart of the Beetaloo Basin, Mudborough elder Ray Dixon is among those opposing the NT government's plan to foster a major shale gas fracking industry. We worry about our water. Our water is very important for us. It's our songline, it's our culture. We can't lose that. He's also worried that creating more greenhouse gas emissions could add to the effects of climate change. The drought going to come and you know, cause a lot of, lot of dry in the, in the area. Because of community concerns, a Beetaloo gas field would create huge greenhouse emissions. The NT government has promised that all of them would be offset. Now a CSIRO division, partly funded by the gas industry, known by the acronym GISERA, has released a report saying it can be done. Andrew McIntosh from the Australian National University is a member of several federal government-funded committees scrutinising the veracity of emissions reduction measures. I think it's wildly unrealistic. The scenarios around the capacity for offsets to be supplied for this project are fundamentally unrealistic and I'm shocked that the CSIRO would put out material like this. 
The CSIRO Gisera report says that all of the emissions produced in Australia from a small Beetaloo Basin gas field could be offset with some measures in the NT, but mostly by buying 10% of all offsets that could be available in other Australian states. It says most emissions could be offset using carbon capture and storage, trapping greenhouse gases underground. What they're basically saying is with a, with a largely unproven technology at a commercial scale that they can get large amounts of abatement. That sounds like very wishful thinking. The report says the rest could be offset by preventing wildfires, avoiding land clearing and planting about 10,000 square kilometres of forestry. Current credit supply from planting trees is, is about 2.5% of total credits generated under the Emissions Reduction Fund. So the idea that at lower prices we're going to get vast amount of areas being put under trees, it's just nonsense. The report says to have a large Beetaloo gas field, offsets would need to be purchased from overseas. The federal government currently doesn't allow international offsets to be counted in Australia. Mark Oog is the principal advisor at the Australia Institute think tank. There's huge questions over the integrity of international offsets. There's a massive conflict of interest here because Gisera is not the CSIRO. It's an alliance of the four biggest fracking companies in Australia with the CSIRO and they have a huge vested interest in getting the kind of result that you're seeing in this report, which is to say, there's nothing to see here, we can just offset the problem. We asked the CSIRO and Gisera to respond to the criticisms and we asked the gas industry body, APA, to comment, but neither got back to us by deadline. The CSIRO's website says the collaboration with industry provides publicly reported high quality and independent research. It's expected most Beetaloo gas would be exported overseas, but the NT Chief Minister Natasha Files sees the report as an endorsement of her plan. The other states want uh, our gas to power their energy network, so we need to make sure that uh, if we step up and supply that, then other states step up and help us with that emissions. We've all got that same goal of a sustainable future. That's the Northern Territory Chief Minister Natasha Files ending Jane Barden's report. The fight is escalating over the future of Brisbane's world-famous Gabba Stadium that's pegged for a costly Olympic makeover. There's been angry debate about plans to build an Olympic oval stadium in the Gabba's place, flattening a primary school and local park in the process. The federal government has repeatedly refused demands by the Senate for more information on who's paying the bill. That's expected to blow out well beyond the initial $1 billion price tag. Stephanie Smale reports. For visiting British cricket mega-fans Marie and Ken Walls, the 126-year-old Gabba Stadium is hallowed ground. I'm actually leaning against it now, against the building, so I've been here. They say it was a no-brainer to include Brisbane in their overseas trip. Once the actual building goes, then it's never going to come back as the Gabba. For those who live, work and go to school near the Gabba, there are deeper concerns like whether the more than 300 primary students who learn in the classrooms nestled right next to the stadium can stay or will have to go. The chair of the East Brisbane State School PNC Association, Nikki Middleton, says parents have no idea what the plan is. It's not fair. I would hope that the Queensland government is making good decisions 
that are not only about a brand new stadium, but actually taking into account the effect on all of the community around all these decisions. The business community is worried too. Mary Vinning has lived in Woolloongabba for more than 20 years and runs a business a block away from the stadium. There's no way they can do major, major reconstruction without closing roads, impacting traffic flow, and that will affect a lot of the businesses in our area. Last year, Queensland's Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk said the initial $1 billion price tag was based on cost estimates in 2021 but acknowledged supply issues could see that increase. And with no clear cost outlines on offer, conjecture has been swirling about whether the federal government's pledge to cover half of the Olympic bill will include the controversial Gabba rebuild. In the Senate this week, Queensland Labor Senator Murray Watt refused demands from the Coalition, Greens and Crossbenchers to provide more information. He instead told the Senate that divulging the financial discussions underway would be damaging. Specifically, disclosure would harm the Commonwealth's ongoing relationship with the state government on this and future infrastructure funding arrangements. This was the response from Queensland Green Senator Penny Allman-Payne. This isn't the murky depths of national security policy execution. It isn't the exercise of sensitive bilateral relations between two nations. It isn't even commercial in confidence. No, this is a case of the public's right to know. The Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk has brushed off concerns. Don't forget, these games are a long way away and the infrastructure is going to be built well ahead of the games. My conversations with the Prime Minister have been absolutely reassuring and promising that he is committed to these Olympics. A spokeswoman for the Federal Infrastructure Minister, Catherine King, says the Queensland and Commonwealth governments are continuing to have cooperative discussions about investment in Olympic Games venue infrastructure, with a commitment to consulting the community and the aim to make sure there's a lasting benefit. Stephanie Smale reporting. The new artificial intelligence tool ChatGPT can generate realistic, human-like text, answer questions and even write relatively sophisticated essays. But what role, if any, could artificial intelligence play when it comes to the creation of music? Developers working for Google have recently released a suite of tools aimed at bringing the power of AI to amateur musicians. So how do they work and what does it mean for music as an art form? Oliver Gordon finds out. It's no masterpiece, but this song is significant. Researchers say the backing track accompanying the amateur vocals was automatically generated by a new AI system called SingSong. The Google initiative is in its early stages and not available to the public, but it's piqued the interest of UNSW music researcher, Associate Professor Oliver Bowne. This is very interesting to see what's now um, seemingly inevitably happening is that you can do music production with lower skill. Backing tracks aren't the only thing Google's attempting to automate. Another of their tools creates music based on text prompts. What you're hearing now is what researchers say the system spat out when they typed in slow tempo, bass and drums led reggae song. What's been done in the background is that um, this is a model of relations between text and audio. So it's been trained on lots of audio and... Uh, that audio com- 
coming in conjunction with text describing it. So if you imagine on a web page, there's a sound file and some text, you might grab that information from that web page and the model can learn relations between the text and the audio. So anything's possible. Not everything works quite the same, but descriptions of musical style, specific instrumentation, specific moods, um, all potentially work out in terms of producing something meaningfully related to the text. Many in the music industry hold quite hostile views towards AI developers' incursion into their creative realm. Australian singer-songwriter Nick Cave recently labelled ChatGPT's attempts to write the lyrics to a song in the style of Nick Cave as a grotesque mockery, going on to say, quote, algorithms don't feel and data doesn't suffer. Melbourne singer-songwriter Tanya Batts, who's rehearsing for an upcoming show, tends to agree. It's not good enough. It's just not good enough yet. Uh, They've got a long way to go to compete with humans creating the music. She says music's too complex a web to be replicated by computers. Humans are going through that experience and the way you then like like paint your soundscape to represent it. I don't think AI will ever be able to do that. While she respects the ingenuity of the developers, she's encouraging them to stay in their lane. They're brilliant at what they do, but I also just think they wish that they were rock stars. Like, (laughs) you know, like why are they even... I think they just want to try and show that it can do everything. Patrick Donovan ran Victoria's music peak body, Music Victoria, for 10 years and has written about the music industry for decades. He says any panic over AI taking over the role of musicians is unfounded. There were fears that the Walkman in the 80s was going to kill record and tape sales. There were fears that dance music would make um, live performances um, obsolete, but people always want to go and see uh, a live band perform. And he's encouraging musicians to greet AI's incursion with an open mind. I think technology can uh, can um, help and hinder uh, the music industry and um If uh, the music industry is clever with it, hopefully uh, it'll do more to help than hinder. Music consultant Patrick Donovan ending Oliver Gordon's report. And that's PM for this week. PM's producer is David Cody, technical production by Nick Dan, David Sargent and Anna John. I'm Rachel Mealy. The PM team with David Lipson will be back on Monday evening and join David on radio tomorrow morning for this week with feature interviews on the earthquake disaster, Australia's housing crisis and the black sovereignty movement. The podcast is also available now on the ABC Listen app. Thanks for your company this week. Good night. Hello, I'm David Lipson. Coming up on this week's stories from the quake zone, tragedy and miracle in the worst natural disaster the world's seen in years. Also, another interest rate rise. How's it impacting on the property market? And Lydia Thorpe quits the Greens. What does her campaign for black sovereignty actually hope to deliver? Keep listening to hear this week or get it on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.